millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following episode contains first-person accounts of mental health distress and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If anything in this episode is a trigger for you, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. A troubled teen. I had a lot of troubles growing up with um, depression and anxiety, and then as a result just kind of acted out. A cocktail of substances. Got on the beers and then found myself in a parking lot asking a stranger, do you have any drugs? Mixed with mental health issues. I found myself then on the tracks waiting for a train to essentially take me. Leads to a life-changing incident. I woke up three days later thinking that I've just woken up in a hospital after a big night out, but turned out that I'd amputated both legs above the knees. From 7 News, this is Real Life. I'm Damien Huffenden. In this episode, double amputee Joshua McKenzie opens up about the mental health struggles that ultimately cost him his legs as a teen. Ten years on, the battle isn't over for Josh, but he's in a much better place. And a warning, Josh's account is raw, frank and uncensored. Josh McKenzie, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, pleasure. <laughs> now, you went through a life-changing incident, I think, more than ten years ago now. Yeah. And we'll get back to that. But let's go back to your teens, obviously. When this happened, what were you like and what was going on? Um... I was a little bit of, um, to, to put it rather bluntly, a little bit of a jerk um, growing up. Notoriously difficult teen for my parents. I don't know, just, just socially unaware, more or less. Just more or less um, narcissistic comes to mind, really, growing up. Um, and then, yeah, I had a lot of troubles growing up with um, depression and anxiety side of things. Um, and then, as a result, just kind of acted out. Um, terrible in school, acted up like 90% of the time, very rarely a truly sincere person. Yeah. Did you ever sort of seek help or treatment or were you just sort of living with it and basically just going with it? Um, there were incidents growing up where I was kind of pushed into um, like psych help and things along those lines. Um, I think at the age of 16, um, I was found in a bathtub drunk underwater. Um, I'm not really sure the intention, um, but it was seen to as a attempt on my own life then. Um, and then after that, my parents, of course, wanted to make sure that I got the help that I needed. They are 
very loving, caring, nurturing people. Um, but I was um, not really willing to confront that side of myself in a sense. So as a result, I went to the psych um, and more or less just flew by the seat of my pants, lied um, and found myself kind of them saying, hey, I don't think there's really much wrong with him. He seems to be A-OK. And I don't know if that was just a testament to me being able to lie to them or lie to myself about it. Obviously, there is, uh, I believe it was a night where all of this came to a head. Um, talk us through what happened. Um, I'd come out of a, a recent breakup. And as one is to do, after a recent breakup, I went out on the town um, got on the beers, so to speak, um, and then found myself at uh, in a parking lot asking a stranger, hey, are you selling anything? Um, you know, what, do you have any drugs? Um, and then from there, he's like, I think it was benzodiazepine that he was like, I've got these. Um, I was like, okay, yeah, give me, give me some of those. Um, from there, took those. The rest of the night was a bit of a blur. Um, Kept drinking, went out into Northbridge in Perth, um, many clubs, many pubs, um, and then essentially got to a point where the police gave me a move-on notice because just completely written off in public, they're like, you need to get out of the city. So I was like, okay, no dramas. I got on the next train out of the city, um, waited in at Leadable Station uh, for a few friends to catch up, and then something which I'm not entirely sure what actually kind of clicked in my head in that moment, but I found myself then pretty much on the tracks um, at Leadable Station waiting for a train to essentially take me. Um, and then from there, I woke up three days later com almost completely unaware of the situation that had happened. Um, thinking that I've just woken up in a hospital after a big night out um, or whatever. But, yeah, um, turned out that I'd attempted to take my own life, um, unsuccessfully, thankfully, um, and uh, um, amputated both legs above the knees. Do you remember being on the tracks and saying, this is it, I want it to be over? I don't know. Um, to an extent... I know the feeling that I had, um, and I think it was more a feeling of just the term rock bottom usually gets thrown around a fair fair bit in those situations, but it was genuinely just a situation of just rage at myself, I suppose, um, bitter contempt, and then, yeah, um, that's kind of, I can remember the feeling but I can't remember the thought process that kind of led to it or the actions that led to it, just the kind of really resounding feeling. And I guess the cocktail of drinks and drugs probably didn't help? I'd say probably not. Um, I'd say that's probably, you know, the, the silver lining and is that kind of allowed me to, you know, re repress that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. So you wake up in hospital. Mm -hmm. You said your first thoughts were it's just been a night out, um, you know, had a bit of a bit of a big one. At what point do you find out that your legs are missing? Um, it was a tricky situation that actually led to that really sinking in where because 
well, even now I can still feel my legs. I've still got complete, like, kind of sensation of my ethereal legs, so to speak, in phantom sensations. I could just feel like it felt like someone was really compressing my feet. Um, I thought it was that my shoes were too tight, which was weird because I was always wearing slip-on shoes. Um, but they, I kept saying, can someone please just take my shoes off? It's, it's hurting. Like it's so tight. And I think, uh, it kind of, I was on a cocktail of drugs then just for the pain at that, at that stage. But I, I have like a vague memory of my parents just like it, it was confronting for them as well because here's their son in bed going, just undo my shoes. I don't understand what's so hard about that. And them having to kind of break the news to me um, along with the nurses being like, you don't have any legs. And it took, I think, a day or two before I actually really accepted that that was the situation at hand. Um, it really just, I felt that not this not happening, not to me, um, you know, the teenage mentality, I'm invincible. Um, it's not me, not, not to me. Yeah. And then I guess there's a point where you have to look down and see that new reality of yourself. What was that like? Um, I don't think I handled it bad, but like, I was also just still a pent up ball of rage at that point in time. I um I was abusing nurses, things along the like I I think of in in the scheme of things, it sounds already bad. I, I could have handled it worse, absolutely. Um, but I think I don't think I handled that well. Um, I, I just started yelling at everyone. Really, uh, just angry at everyone except myself. Um, or projecting my own anger at myself onto everyone else. Um, and I, I don't think I was everyone's favourite person in the ICU. Uh, and I guess you're still a teenager at the time as well. So yeah. um, you're going through some mental health issues. You're obviously going through this this incident as well as, I guess, puberty still happening as well. So I guess it's understandable. Yeah. How was the recovery process? Recovery process was surprisingly quick. I think I was only in hospital for like, a month or two, in all honesty. Um, I I have a lot of weird driving factors that kind of led me to wanting to get out as quick as possible. Um, at the time, I was a pretty heavy smoker, so all I wanted to do was get out for a cigarette. So it wasn't long after I was moved out of kind of the intensive care side of things, I was like, all right, how do I get onto a chair? And they're like, are you sure you're ready for this? I'm like, yes, Absolutely. Um, at the time, I was like, I just want to have a shower. But in the back of my mind, I was like, no, I want a cigarette. Um, so they they got me to, to transfer pretty early on so I could get around a bit more. I was like just onto a commode that they had there. I was like, excellent. All right, first step, um, I'm going to go get me some cigarettes. Um, and then, of course, they didn't let me leave. Um, makes sense. But like as a result of that, I was just kind of like pushing myself to – get as mobile as possible pretty early on. Like there was, when they moved me to the rehab facility, I was very rarely kind of in bed. I was always kind of out of the room mostly, I think because that lessened the fact that I had to confront the fact that, oh, this is, this is hospital, this is where I am now, this is my new life, you know? 
as as that process is happening, you're learning to get around without legs now and probably largely relying on a wheelchair. Mm. Was there more sort of depression involved in that? Did you feel more helpless as a result? Yes and no. Um, I don't think I ever got the the hopeless, helpless feeling. Like I always kind of, because I'd done it to myself in a sense and because I'd inflicted that pain on other people, I was very much, I took that on board pretty early on. Like there's nothing more heart-wrenching than seeing your parents' faces after that and, you know, I know for a fact that they were kind of like, where did we go wrong? And they didn't. Um, It was all in me. So it was very quickly, instead of kind of feeling helpless or kind of defeated about it, I turned to kind of making a lot of quick quips about it or making a lot of jokes and jest, mostly because I wanted other people to see that I was doing okay. And I like, so I tried to kind of confront it or at least bury that kind of helpless side of things as much as possible so that the people around me weren't hurt twofold, if you know what I mean. And was that more a front, do you think, or was that actually a coping mechanism? No, front, absolutely. Um, Not at at all had I kind of confronted anything or kind of um, accepted it completely. Um, There was... I think it took a matter of years before I was really at all okay with the whole idea of it. There was always kind of like, oh, I'm just going to wake up tomorrow and be fine. Um, there was a lot of, yeah, that kind of delusion um, in the back of my head. I was like, yep, I'm just going to wake up and it's going to be back to normal and same old. But I'd handled things kind of poorly for a very long while in the sense that I just buried it. Um, I turns almost immediately to, to drinking the pain away soon after getting out of rehab while in rehab it was I was always in their gym because I just needed something to distract me from the reality essentially um, it wasn't until probably 25 26 that I was actually accepting of it which was about eight years later uh, along that way too I believe you got into some MMA I did. I did for a little while. Um, after a, I think a, after I kind of really accepted it, I started trying to better myself in, in lieu of being able to tackle things emotionally. A lot of the times I just kind of, oh, well, I can work on my physical side of things and like, you know, get, get my life in one aspect, in one aspect that I can control in order. Um, so I started just wheeling about the neighborhood and a guy down the road from me trained MMA and he'd always see me wheeling around and just kind of in a sweat and he was like hey man have you ever considered doing MMA um so Adam at the best don't rest he kind of took me in um as he I don't think he really knew the impact at the time on that with me because it was I didn't really feel seen a lot of the time, like, yeah, you get you get seen. Like, people are like, oh, there's, look at this guy. He's out and about in wheelchair. Go him. Um, but, like, I, he kind of took me in and showed me a way that I could be more capable than I was letting myself believe I could be. Like, I was still at that point, like, oh, I'm a 
helpless guy in a wheelchair, what, what can I do? Um, and then kind of showed me the value of what I do have in just, you know, my upper body side of things. And yeah, it really made me kind of accept and confront who I really was as a result of everything. Another thing I found uh, when looking you up was um, you climbing Perth's tallest building with your hands. Yeah, that was a that was a fun little time that um, I don't know what came over me. Um, in all honesty, <laughs> it was um, it all started with a really kind of snide joke from a friend, and like it was fine. Like, it, like I'm. I'm pretty tolerant of like any jokes or any kind of things that anyone's going to throw at me. People are going to say what they're going to say. If it affects me negatively, I'll let them know. But like I said after the MMA thing, I was like, I feel like I can confront anything. And then he said anything except stairs. And I was like, well, hang on. Well, let's put that to the test. So I started um, there's a place in Kings Park in Perth called Jacob's Ladder. Um, I don't know why I chose to go to Perth's biggest stair set for the first attempt of I'm going to start tackling stairs, but heck, I'm kind of glad I did. Um, so my friend Cam, he, I told him because he was into the gym at the time, I was like, hey, man, I'm, I don't know how this is going to work, but you want to take me down there? wasn't driving, so I needed to get a lift everywhere. So he took me down um, and very patiently walked behind me as I very slowly made my way down the stairs because you start at the top and then even more patiently waited for me to walk behind me as I made my way to the top. And then after a couple of visits, I was making a several trips and so I was like, Hey, there's this step up for MS thing here where we climb the um, central park tower. Would, would you be interested? And I was like, Oh, seems like a lot of stairs. Um, but yeah, I bit the bullet. I was like, yeah, why not? I'll get on board and then managed to conquer that one. So just more or less. So people couldn't say that, you know, stairs were an obstacle anymore. And then as a result, I just, now it doesn't really affect me. There was a time I lost my front tooth. Um, and then the filling kind of came out of it. So I was like, oh, I need a dentist immediately. So I called a dentist. I was like, yo, can I get in? Uh, yep, Absolutely. So I was like, cool, let's do it. I still really bad with checking for accessibility for myself. Um, other people are way better at checking for accessibility than even I am. So I pulled up to the place and I, was, I got to the door. I thought it was two levels. The bottom part was the orthodontist. The top part was the dentist. I was like, ah, okay, interesting. So I got to the bottom of the stairs. I was, there was no kind of admin or anything down there I was like all right it's all upstairs so I just got out of my chair pulled my chair up with me up the stairs I got up there and I was like hey here for my appointment and they were like how the hell did you get up here I was like just climbed the stairs I'm like there's a lift around the back I was like <laughs> I didn't. no one was downstairs to let me know but yeah so it was like kind of one of those things that just let really yeah it, it that was probably the, the biggest turning point for me. I was like, okay, yeah, the things aren't really standing in my way anymore. You mentioned there, obviously, you, you forget to check accessibility. Is it something that you forget about sometimes that, hey, I've got no legs or, hey, I'm in a wheelchair, like there's things I need to look out for if I'm going places? Absolutely. My partner's 
often a little bit more mindful than I am on that one. And like, I, I don't really notice about much of it. Like, they'll be in the back of my mind sometimes when I know for a fact that there's, you know, a, an obstacle that, you know, I can't be bothered dealing with on that night or that day that I'm like, uh, uh, not going to work for me. Um, but yeah, no, um, checking for those things. I also like, I could kind of confront it. Like if I was, if I bit the bullet and went down the left, uh, the avenue of, um, prosthetics, I have prosthetics. I hate them. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I don't, don't worry about the accessibility. I'll figure it out. If people are there and I, you know, need to go in or, or I need to see people, I'll just, I'll just deal with it. It's easier and making a fuss. I don't like fuss. <laughs> <laughs> um, just on the prosthetics, you said mm. that you hate them. Why Why is that? I got fitted for my prosthetics in the, like, kind of the the deepest into my depression cycle when I was just, like, kind of turning to, to food, alcohol, whatever. So as a result, the prosthetics were cast for me at my, my, my thickest. So it was kind of like, for a while, it was great. I was using them fairly regularly they fit great and then after a while because the the wear and tear on me and I think that was also kind of what pushed me into getting myself into better shape as well was that it really was exhausting to use and it just didn't seem feasible at the time so I started working on myself I lost a bunch of weight and then the casts and everything no longer fit me so I was like okay cool so I had an issue, I had a little bit of an issue with the, the public health care in the sense that I more or less dropped off the outpatient radar because I was so quick to get out and I tried, kind of really wanted to prove my independence. I let myself kind of fall into the cracks instead of kind of staying in their thoughts. So by the time I was kind of in a shape where I thought, yep, I can make prosthetics probably work for me now, I was more or less out of their system and kind of on my own so I was like well it's kind of formed a little bit of my identity now with the chair so and it's more or less just an attachment of me so it's just how I've kind of accepted to things to be but now if I try them on because they're so kind of baggy and stuff they'll move about and it's just extremely uncomfortable um it hurts a little bit because I've got a little bit of bone growth from um from the amputation I've got think bone spurs i think it was referred to where the bones are just kind of shooting out like branches so trying to put pressure on that just hurts so i was like you know what this is the chair's fine i can get by and there's a lot of extra efforts when you have uh, an above knee amputation for one prosthetic let alone both i imagine yeah absolutely absolutely um and because they're really quite high up it's i don't have a lot of muscle there to kind of engage um and the the interesting situation that i get myself in as well is because of the bone spurs and the skin grafts kind of attached a little bit to those bone spurs as like i build any leg muscle it kind of pulls and it gets really tight and uncomfortable so it's like it's a weird little predicament that i've found myself in so i was just like oh Maybe just um, maybe sitting down all the time is not so bad, you know? Yeah, fair enough. I guess the time comes when you've got to go into the workforce, yep. um, find a job, make some money. Mm -hmm. How does that go when um, you rock up in a wheelchair? 
Pretty well. Um, I my bat rate for going for jobs, like like getting into companies and things like that, is currently a hundred percent. I'm two for two. Wow, cool. Yeah, so it's it's probably trickier for the person interviewing me because I I disengage the situation pretty quickly. My director at the moment famously likes to remind me anytime I'm not sitting in my own chair that I told her that she should hire me because I come with my own chair. <laughs> um, so it's like I I try to kind of lighten the situation and kind of um, there's no better icebreaker than just quickly making a quick 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 quip about it. That was tough to say, and then you know uh, it, it pulls them on side and like oh, okay, this guy's not really um affected by it in the sense that it's gonna you know like impair him too much and yeah just let him know that hey i'm pretty nimble on top of that hitting the dating scene i know you've got a partner now Mm -hmm. how was it hitting the dating scene after all of that um it was interesting um i don't know um i've spent a lot of my time kind of in relationships, there was a two-year block where I was single, and um, I think it worked because when you're out on the town, um, girls in heels, they just want a seat, and I had a seat, so you know <laughs> that worked pretty well. Um, but yeah, that I, my my single time was very short-lived. Um, luckily, I found my partner Mel, who's really empowered me throughout pretty much the entire latter half and my healing process. And she knew me from uh, – she didn't really meet me too much before the accident, which I'm pretty thankful for. Otherwise, she probably wouldn't have taken on those treacherous waters. But, yeah, I, I never really had too much trouble just because I would kind of broach the topic really quickly and make a joke about it. And then I kind of let my humor on the side of things take a front and then – as soon as it's disengaged and taken off the table from that, that it doesn't really come up too much. Um, aside from the, does do you have everything still? And it's like, well, yeah, I didn't get amputated that high, um, and and that's it. I guess does it work? You're like, well, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Now, uh, on top of that, I know you drive as well. How does that work? Yeah. Um, I've got my little hand controls, they bolt onto the, the gas, not the ga- I'm not American, the accelerator and brake and just hold it in my left hand and away I go. I drive mostly mo- since the accident, every car I've had has been kind of modified in the sense that not for the disability, but modified for aesthetics. So the driving is fine. It's the parking that's usually the problem because they see a young person in a modified car parking in a disabled bay and like they often don't say things. Some people will. Some people will go, you realise this is a disabled bay, right? I'm like, well, I don't know how much more disabled you want me to be. (laughs) Um, But it'll be, it's often I'll pull into the spot and if there's someone walking past, they'll slow down just to like wait for me to get out of the car or wait for a wheelchair to pop up and then as soon as they kind of see the wheelchair they'll start walking I was like I'm not a jerk <laughs> you know <laughs> now talking to you now obviously seems like you're doing a lot better uh in the mental space how long is it taking you to get mm. to here and and are you okay now um 
to get to this point, I, oh God, probably in years, it would have been eight-ish. Like when Mel came along, I still was far from okay. I was still unemployed at that point in time. But as I kind of, one, got my license, got a job, um, moved out of home as well and like kind of made myself more independent, I really started to kind of thrive a little bit more. Um, the the ability to say that I'm okay, um, absolutely not. Um, still got a whole wealth of mental issues that I confront daily, but it's more a sense now that I feel that I've got more value to give in this situation than I, of course, did previously because I was more taking previously before the accident. So, yeah, okay-ish would be the the way to say. Um, But still, I mean, everyone's got a long way to go in their own kind of personal battles. I don't think anyone can ever say, yep, I'm 100% perfectly okay or perfectly fine. It's, no, everyone, everyone's got their own thing and, that's, mm. you know, everyone's working on their own thing as long as you're confronting it. Good work. Absolutely. Before we go, I guess um, I should ask, obviously your disability is very visible <laughs> and you're getting around in a wheelchair and mm. do you get a lot of questions? Do you get a lot of staring? Do a lot of people ask what happened or make assumptions about what happened to you? Um, some people will make assumptions. They won't say them, bless their, bless their little cotton socks. Um, I do get questions. I get a lot of questions, of course, from kids um, who zero social filter, just immediately say what's on their mind. So it's always a lot of kids like, oh, what happened to his legs? If I'm in earshot, it's usually just a simple, if their parents are there, like, oh, I didn't eat my veggies. Oh, you know, just, uh, you know, encourage health. Um, but I've early on, I would lie. Uh, I'd sometimes say the honest truth, but I'd often just kind of sweep it away pretty quickly. Um, A motorbike accident, you know, just something kind of simple. Once again, hiding from my own truths, more more or less. And now it's more a case of if someone asks, I'll gladly just kind of off the cuff, let them know. Um, Even at work, because I work face-to-face customer service, if customer asks, hey, what, if, I'm, if I may ask what happened, it's just, it's easy just to say the truth now. It's, there's more value in that. And I I probably should sugarcoat things a little bit more sometimes in the in my answers, but I'll usually just fire from the hip. I oh, tried to take my own life by standing in front of a train. And they're like, what? And early on it, as well, I was like, oh, I need to think of a cooler story. And I was like, why does it need to be cool? Like, I, I, I don't know why. I was like, oh, I need to think of something. That, like, no, that's just the healing process is weird. But, yeah, and then as a result, uh, towards the end, it was just not easier just to say the truth, let them know. And then if they want to talk about it more, cool. If I'll usually get a pretty good read on people pretty early on on how deep I want to go with them. But, you know, it's case by case. Do you think there's more conversations around mental health and suicide now than obviously when you were going through it, you know, that 11 odd years ago? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, um, there's a lot, I think the stigma is still there a little bit, but I think it's definitely 
like less confronting to admit to people or you know admit to yourself that hey I'm not doing as well as I probably should be I'm famously very open about how I'm doing you know mentally as soon as kind of I'm not doing great I'll usually get a pretty good read on myself and you know say hey mm -mm, don't do it don't say things um the jokes need to pause for a little bit and let me recover and I'll just drop off and then come back but the the topic and the ability to kind of even just broach the subject now is way better um but again it's on a case by case basis on if you know that person's willing to accept that themselves um and I think the understanding of others million times better but the accepting of ourselves when we get in those positions still a lot of work to do because i think there's a lot of people out there with a lot of issues that they're not willing to tackle or not willing to confront because they're not seeing it in themselves great words there i guess to wrap things up um, what would be your advice to someone who's going through a downtime, dark time, depression, uh, anxiety, possibly even suicidal thoughts? It's it's a tough one to say because it's so much easier to say, hey, just find someone to, to talk to. Um, it's, I think taking the time to get in tune with yourself is probably vastly more important than you know just hey i'm not doing good like that's of course extremely important but the ability to know when you're not doing okay is i think the the greatest weapon any of us have in fighting our depressions or you know um what's intrusive thoughts or things along those lines the we're not really given those tools i don't think sometimes i think because of previous stigma and things along those lines, like, ah, oh, I'm probably just tired. Oh, I'm probably just, you know, exhausted from a long week. Ah, oh, you know, oh, just an off day. Um, but you should kind of diving into those feelings on yourself, being your own psych is, you know, there's a lot of power in that. Um, and I think it's important to, to let yourself understand yourself as much as possible. So, like, it's... it's weird as it is meditate on it i don't really take the, the actual meditation thing myself but i'll kind of try to be as in tune with myself as i possibly can and that's a good tool and then what actions from there from there it is again a case by case if you're comfortable talking like going making that appointment to to go see a psychiatrist psychologist that's awesome that's that you know there's that's that's real strength but not everyone has well one the financial ability to do so to the you know the the ability to kind of tackle that hurdle going all right I'm going to I'm going to talk to a psychologist um so it's having someone you know that you do trust or that you can talk to and going hey not feeling great or even throwing out the fishing net and just, you know, you know, social media gets a lot of, you know, bad stigma about how it can negatively affect your, you know, mental health, but it can also be a pretty good tool. 
Um, recently, myself, I posted about how I wasn't doing good. I didn't really give too much detail. I just said, hey, I'm feeling horrible um, at the moment. I uh, didn't really say not talk to me, to talk to me, anything, but uh, the outpour of kind of support that I didn't really expect it to come from in some places and uh, yourself included even reached out to me yeah. and was like, hey, man, um, is there anything I can do? Like, what's going on? And, like, that's – there's positives in that in the sense that just – Allowing yourself to admit to yourself that you're not doing okay and then admit to others that you're not doing okay. There's usually going to be, you know, minimum one person that's going to go, hey, how, how can I help? Like, you know, what's what's going on? Do you want to talk about it? You know, and I think that's a, a pretty a good action. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your openness and candor. It's been amazing to hear your story and your insight. And thank you so much for sharing it. Absolute pleasure, Damien. Absolute pleasure. My thanks to Josh for being so open with his experiences for this episode. Don't forget, if anything in this episode has triggered feelings or thoughts for you, we'll put links to Lifeline and Beyond Blue in the show notes. Also, be sure to subscribe to Real Life for more incredible stories. I'm Damien Huffenden, and this has been Real Life from 7 News. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.